So welcome, everyone. Thank you so much for coming out on this cold night to join our intimate gathering of the very, the very healthy people here um, in London for an event that um, I'm very, very happy to um, moderate. My name is Catherine Boone. I'm a professor in government and international development here at the LSE. And it's really my pleasure to, uh, to chair this event, which is a discussion and a book launch. The book is called Overcoming Boko Haram. Uh, and the event is titled A Book and Conversation on Islamic Extremism in West Africa. Um, I would like to say a few words about the book and the topic, and then, um, then introduce our, our, our events, scheduled events for the time that we have together. So Boko Haram uh, marks now a decade. I'm borrowing and quoting from the introductory sections of the book a decade of violent and extremely destructive jihadism in northeast Nigeria. The book's introduction cites that in the, the year 2015, glo the Global Terrorism Index declared Boko Haram to be the most deadly terrorist group in the world. And in 2018, it remained one of the most violent. Some grim statistics just to, just to set the stage, 27,000 people killed. 2 million displaced. According to the information that the authors give us in the, the introduction, cost Nigeria about 17 billion in damage and output loss, and not to mention what they call the apocalyptic devastation brought across much of Northeast Nigeria. There is indeed a mountain of existing literature on Boko Haram. And what this book does is, um, cover some familiar ground and advance also a new perspective. So three analytic themes of the book that I would just like to sketch out by way of introduction is the book engages debates about how to explain the rise and explain the activities of Boko Haram. So as I'm sure the speakers will, will discuss, it considers the ideology explanation to Islamic fundamentalism the psychology type explanations that examine radicalization, some specific political factors that have to do with Nigeria and northeastern Nigeria, corruption, failures of the military, some global and international factors. But what this book advances in particular, as, as Kate will explain, is an argument that has to do with the wider, what she calls the wider realities of the context in which this particular movement or this particular socio-political phenomenon emerge. So the authors ask, in particular, the question of why, why here? Why this phenomenon in this place at this time? And why not elsewhere? Why here, not elsewhere at this time? And the wider realities. And I was struck by the number of times the word reality appeared in, in the book's intro in framing the argument. So secondly, in addition to these debates about uh, debates around explaining the rise of Boko Haram, I think um, one of the distinctive contributions of the analysis is to talk about resistance to Boko Haram. So what is the pushback? Who has not, who, who has not joined the struggle? 
what is the, the pushback and struggle against Boko Haram within within northern Nigeria and also Nigeria itself. And again, the authors cite in the intro that over 90% of Nigerian Muslims have a negative view of Boko Haram. And indeed, part of what they document in some of the chapters of the book are specific kinds of civil society and political actions taken by people in the region to uh, curb and contain uh, Boko Haram. And then thirdly, by way of analytic themes, the authors engage the question of, of the future. So what direction, where, where is this movement, this political phenomenon happening now? So the territorial drive and the military thrust of Boko Haram has been curbed in the last couple of years, but this movement obviously has not gone away. It has splintered, it has mutated in form, it has sort of moved throughout space. So the authors engage that interesting interesting problem, what can be anticipated in terms of future dynamics. So those are the analytic themes. Um, now before I turn it over to our panel, I would like to say a few words about how this book came, came to be, or a few words of what I know about how it came to be. Uh, the book is an edited volume, by, edited by Abdul Rafu Mustafa and Kate Maher. Um, as you may know, Rafu Mustafa spent about 10 years, probably more in large context, studying political dynamics in northern Nigeria. He had a trilogy of books on northern Nigeria, um, produced over time in 2014, a volume called Sex, Sex and Social Disorder, as in Religious Sex and Social Disorder. In 2018, a book came out called Creed and Grievance that, like the one we're talking about tonight, was focused on explaining these dynamic interactions between religion, Islam, relig religiosity, and material grievances and social disorder. And as, you, as you may know, Rafa Mustafa passed away in 2017 and uh, did not finish this last volume in the trilogy. So Kate Maher, my colleague, professor of international development at LSE and Rafu's wife, spearheaded the effort to complete the volume and bring it to publication. So it's Kate's, um, we have here tonight as the editor of the book and the author of a few chapters to tell us about the book and its significance and um, I would just like to recognize this very significant per personal event in the life of an academic and the life of a family to have a book come out that under these circumstances quite poignant um, and very, very meaningful, I'm sure, for, for all of them that you all are here um, tonight to, to engage the topic, which, which is the, the larger certainly part and parcel of the larger cause, but also gives, gives meaning to, to a person's life, life work and also gives meaning to the importance of collaborations, uh, personal and professional and both. So um, with that introduction, I would like to introduce the panel. Our, our first speaker is Kate Maher, who edited um, the volume with Rafu Mustafa. She will talk for about 15 minutes. Then we have Professor Fumi Olani Sakin from King's 
college here in London who will continue the discussion, presenting also for 10 or 15 minutes. And then thirdly, Aoife McCullough, who is a PhD candidate here in international development at LSE, but also with wide, wide experience in, uh, in, this, in this subject matter, who will also present for 10 or 15 minutes. Then we'll open it up um, and to see what you all would like to add and talk about and have a period of time for Q&A. Around 7.45, we will segue from our conversation into the reception part of our event. Um, and the reception will be combined with a book signing and a book sale. So that material is here if you would like to acquire a copy. But you don't have to uh, acquire a copy in order to stay and participate in the reception. So um, we look forward to that. So without any further ado, let me turn the floor over to Professor Kate Maher. Thank you all. Thanks all for coming. Um, I'd like to thank the chair for that kind introduction and my fellow panelists here and also my fellow contributors without whom this book would be, wouldn't have been possible, including Murray Last, who's here in the, in the audience with us and is one of the contributors to the book. Um, and also all of you for coming out on this uh, corona evening. Uh, I was a little worried for a while there that this might be canceled, so I'm very relieved that it's been able to go ahead. Um, I would like to just put something up here. I'm going to accompany this with just some, some pictures to set the mood. Um, it's, as Kathy mentioned, it's um, quite a, uh, an important personal thing to get this book to press, but also a really important political issue. This uh, Boko Haram has been ravaging northern Nigeria and parts of Nigeria for a decade now. And when it broke out, nobody imagined that such a thing could happen. It took everybody completely by surprise. And even though people were shocked, they never imagined that it would last for very long. So the fact that it has endured for 10 years has been a sobering uh, experience, I think, for most Nigerians. It's kind of gets people to think that this country that they always thought was such a different place from Chad or Central African Republic or Democratic Republic of the Congo, and people, including myself, said Nigeria will never be like that. But now it's within the realm of possibility in some areas, and that's very disturbing. So this book started off its uh, life as a report, as a research uh, project commissioned by Nigeria's Office of the National Security Advisor to create a soft approach to counter-extremism. It was supposed to be a, a whole of society perspective about how to move beyond the focus on securitization or security and humanitarianism to really engage with overcoming Boko Haram because it was seen already by that stage, 2014, that purely security-based approaches were not going to do the job, and that one had to engage more deeply with society. But what we found at the time, this involved field work at the peak of Boko Haram's insurgency, um, 
into understanding why it was happening and how people understood it. Um, and then updated as time passed uh, until the point of, of the book. So it goes up to about early, late 2018, early 2019. Um, to really try to understand how the way that we understand Boko Haram and Islamic extremism more broadly maybe fails to engage with the realities that are necessary to understand it in order to overcome it. And that means really looking beyond some of the conventional wisdom about Islamic extremism and about um, donor approaches and security approaches to it. On the one hand, it means looking behind, beyond the, the idea that this is about religious ideology and looking more to the underlying political and economic causes uh, for which the religious part is the idiom of protest rather than the, the reason for protest. It also highlights a need to move beyond, as I said, security and humanitarian approaches to a focus on the social institutions and so, uh, economic pressures that underpin those who engage and those who do not engage with Boko Haram. Um, and it requires, above all things, engagement with more grounded expertise on Boko Haram in particular and Islamic extremism more generally, because many of the experiences here aren't transferable from one context of Islamic extremism to another. There are a lot of instant experts on Islam in Nigeria since Boko Haram has come up who don't really understand the history of Islam in Nigeria. Um, people who talk about the role of the Nigerian military who haven't actually looked at the, the roots of the military, the role of the military in Nigeria and the problems that it faces in addressing something as complicated as a religious insurgency. Um, we were fortunate enough to benefit from uh, the, what was called the Islamic Research Network, which was pulled together by Rauf Mustafa in, uh, based in Oxford University and involved a network of seasoned experts in various uh, aspects of, of uh, the, the study of Nigeria. Nigerian scholars and scholars who study Nigeria and have done so for a long time, working on Islam, on the military, um, living in Meduguri at the time and talking about the role of Borno in the insurgency. So there are people really on the ground. And as I said, all of this was based on fieldwork not on hearsay, and fieldwork at the time that Boko Haram was in action. So this book also tries to adopt a comparative approach to the idea of extremism, with a view to understanding, as Kathy said, why here, why now? So why did Boko Haram break out in Borno State, rather than in Kano, which is the epicenter of Salafism in Nigeria? Why did it break out in northern Nigeria, but not in Niger, which is much poorer and more Muslim. So looking at the specific circumstances to understand the, 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 the other forces at play that explain why something happened in one place and not in another. And we have chapters on why Borno, followed by a chapter that effectively, the title should have been Why Not Niger, but the author wanted a different title. Um, so these ideas are explored in the book. But there's also the issue, the wider issue, that Islam is not just a northern Nigerian thing. It is 
widely practiced across much of Africa. And in a situation, for, for many years, many people thought that Islamic extremism wasn't an African thing. A lot of African Islam is Sufi Islam, which is a fairly um, moderate, uh, tolerant type of Islam. Um, but in Africa, you have nine Muslim-majority countries in West Africa, five Muslim-majority countries in East and Southern Africa, and significant Muslim populations in 15 other African countries. So understanding specifically how Islamic extremism um, plays out in particular places, which Islamic countries are actually vulnerable to extremism and which ones are not, rather than assuming if there are Muslims, extremism is on the way. Uh, it's very important to understand how Islam fits into the history of particular African countries in order to see why not Niger, why not Senegal, also poorer than Nigeria, and much more Muslim. So I've framed this event um, as a conversation in order to bring out some of these comparative issues and have much more of a sense of what is going on in Nigeria as a basis maybe for thinking in a more um, a more open fashion, a more informed fashion about how Islam uh, and extremism come together in other parts of Africa. And what I'd like to do here is to challenge the conventional wisdom uh, on five levels. Uh, on, on the level of primary causes, on the level of religion, on the level of the role of the state in the military, the role of women in education, and finally the role of Muslim majority societies uh, in the process of overcoming Boko Haram. So to start with primary causes, one of the core uh, messages of the book is that, and I have, is that um, Boko Haram is not primarily about global Islamic terrorism. It is a homegrown response to uh, a set of political pressures based largely, political and economic pressures based largely on uh, poverty and inequality in a Muslim majority society. So the connections with AQIM and Al-Shabaab and ISIS are largely cosmetic. It's Boko Haram trying to sound like it's well connected, but haven't been significant until fairly recently. Now that ISIS needs to grab uh, reach around for bases of legitimacy, there seems to be a little bit more in the way of connection. But initially, uh, really, ISIS couldn't be bothered. Um, so what Boko Haram is, is not something implanted by global terrorist ide ideologies, but actually a reaction to broken promises of liberal modernity, compounded by the broken promises of the adoption of Sharia law, of Islamic populism. Uh, which uh, came about in 1999 and uh, built up a sense that uh, justice would finally come in northern Nigeria, justice to the poor would be done under Sharia, and that also proved to be a disappointment. So it is really a product of what you could call failed Islamic populism rather than uh, a product of global Islamic terrorism. So, whoops, I'm not quite sure what's happening here. There we go. Okay, so the, the rise of Sharia law and the attempt to create a, an illusion of justice by Islam backfired when all they got was more corruption and more injustice. 
So to understand the role of poverty in the context of Boko Haram, it's really important to think about poverty not as individual deprivation, and maybe many people say Boko Haram is not about poverty because many people involved in it were not poor. Poverty is really about regional dynamics of poverty and inequality, which in Nigeria overlap with ethnicity and religion, rather than about individual experiences of want. Um, if you look here, you can see that regionally, uh, this map shows uh, inequality at the state level, so inequality within states. The most unequal area is the, uh, the north, and particularly this area, which is the epicenter of Boko Haram. And you can see the south, there's much greater equality. So it's not only the internal inequality, but the inequality between regions. Um, and that is even more evident if you look at this graph of the intensity of poverty and the number of the percent of people be below the poverty line. And you can see huge inequality between the southern states and the northern states. So very intense poverty, many people who are poor, and a huge difference from the south. In Niger, by contrast, you can see that it's even more poor because there's a huge clustering of the regions uh, uh, around the most intensely poor segment, but there's not very much inequality. So Boko Haram is very much connected not just with the intensity of poverty, but the inequality, the regional inequality between a much more prosperous south and a much less prosperous north. Um, if you were to take the FDI, uh, or sorry, HDI equivalents, Lagos State has an HDI similar to India, and these upper states, Yobe and Bauchi, have an HDI similar to Afghanistan. So we, we have in Nigeria a situation in which poverty rates are, are extremely high, inequality is extremely high, and the religious response to these things is what many people have focused on as the, the, the source of extremism and of Boko Haram. But many people focus on the rise of Salafism as the trigger for the, the negative trends in, um, in well, the, the, the rise of extremism. Northern Nigeria is a largely Sufi area. Uh, Salafism has been around on and off, but it has been uh, particularly promoted by Saudi Arabia. Um, but the problem in northern Nigeria is not that Salafism uh, has come to Nigeria, but that there are developments of very extreme forms of Salafism, such as Boko Haram. The standard Salafism is actually quite peaceful. It's pro-education, it's pro-women's education, and it emphasizes Islamizing the state rather than destroying the state. So Salafism is not the problem. The problem is that, not the doctrine of Salafism, but the fact that Salafism unanchors Islamic interpretation from the doctrinal discipline of Islamic uh, legal and theological schools and allows rational interpretation directly from the Quran. And that creates space for reckless speech preaching by unlearned preachers using quotations from the Quran and their own interpretations. Okay, um, so the problem with Salafism is not so much that it is different from Sufism, 
but that it unanchors itself from the doctrinal discipline of Islam and allows unlearned people to just uh, start preaching. And we have a chapter that really goes into the specific dynamics of different schools and the tension between Sufi and Salafi Islam and the way that that created a cauldron of extreme ideas and desperation and political outrage, which gave rise to Boko Haram. Um, the, okay, this is uh, Thurston's book on Salafism, which uh, really gives a really good feel of the, the peaceful side of Salafism. So the role of the military, um, one of the issues also to think about is the problem of the state and the military in terms of Boko Haram is not just corruption and human rights abuses, but the underlying structural and regulatory issues that actually have exacerbated um, extremism. The problems of state neglect, corruption, violent political brinksmanship, and military heavy-handedness have been documented by many people as something that provokes and perpetuates extremism. Uh, the opaque and unaccountable security votes have become an increasing incentive to not end Boko Haram because these security votes and the security funding have created something that people refer to as an ATM machine uh, for the military and for the state to withdraw money from the, the treasury. Um, and that has perpetuated corruption, but it also undermined the incentive for uh, ending Boko Haram. Um, it's also undermined the funding of people at the front line, so huge amounts of money um, in the, the range of one to one and a half billion uh, dollars per, per year is being spent on security, but at the, the front line you have very little in the way of equipment. Okay, but there are also basic structural problems in the Nigerian system. The constitution does not mandate secularism, but religious neutrality. And in a country that is polarized roughly 50-50 between Islam and Christianity, where there is immense competition for, uh, among the states for um, state power and for oil resources, that state neutrality and a federal system that doesn't allow interference by the federal government in the uh, activities of the states creates a framework for intensified competition and religious as well as political brinksmanship. Uh, many of the regulatory institutions about religious, religion and education have been allowed to atrophy or have been taken over by these same religious interests that are uh, competing for uh, attention and state resources. And in fact, one of the secrets of Niger is the more centralized religious structure of Francophone countries um, actually makes it easier for the state to control um, the, the ways in which uh, education and preaching are carried out and to control extremist tendencies. Um, I know I'm running out of time, so I just want to say very quickly a couple of things about women and about education. The whole idea um, in chapter seven that Boko Haram represents a, uh, a liberation from the oppressive the ways in which Islamic society and, and northern Nigerian society in particular uh, oppresses women, women um, really doesn't take into account the nature of uh, Islamic society in northern Nigeria, where not only is there, are there plenty of spaces for women, Muslim women to uh, develop their own uh, spaces for gender struggles, 
but also uh, mainstream Salafism gives a lot of room for women's education and for women to enter the, the labor market in various ways. So there are a lot of spaces for women to look for uh, various types of, of liberation or to engage in gender struggles. Joining Boko Haram actually reinforces their dependence on uh, men as breadwinners or as uh, householder or as heads of household rather than creating space for autonomy. Okay. Um, in fact, it's very much in the context of Boko Haram. Women, women struggle against uh, Boko Haram and women's counter-radicalization activities that have played a major role in uh, that have given space for their struggles for autonomy. Uh, in Bring Back Our Girls, uh, in various other NGOs, as journalists, as civil society activists, as doctors, as aid workers, and even as CJTF men, uh, members, this uh, um, civilian joint task force that doesn't just involve people going out with guns and killing Boko Haram uh, members, but also involved informing and monitoring and women doing metal testing uh, on other women in, in the market. So uh, plenty of room for women to engage uh, in autonomous activities, but it was mostly expressed in fighting Boko Haram rather than in joining Boko Haram. Uh, with regard to uh, women rejoining Boko Haram, a lot of it had, it had more to do with the squalid and insecure conditions of the camps than a sense that there was more autonomy in Boko Haram. Um, a few words about education. Um, it's important to look beyond the cultural stereotypes of why Boko, or Western education, is Haram. The stereotype really is uh, to do with a, just a flat-out rejection of cultural rejection of Western education. But uh, chapter nine actually examines some of the negative feelings about Western education that are perhaps less cultural and more uh, economically grounded. They have to do with the disaffection over the failure of Western education to deliver on its promise of a dignified livelihood. And during this research, we found people who maybe were the, the first people who had gone to university in their families, who ended up as hawkers or load carriers in the market because the quality of their education was poor and because the, um, there were no jobs to absorb them when they were done. So there was a, a real disaffection among the, those who had education that Western education was a, a disappointment. It gave them nothing. And at the um, informal economy level, many people with apprenticeships who were in skilled activities were being frustrated by um, graduates who were beginning to move in on lucrative activities in the informal economy in, in the context, in many cases, of some of these graduate education programs um, and taking over the areas where, where traditionally trained people actually used to, to make their money and develop their own livelihoods. And those people were also frustrated with Western education that was allowing people to take over informal activities that had traditionally been the preserve of people with uh, education, so, or with uh, uh, apprenticeship education. Uh, the final issue that I just want to point to is the ways in which we think about Islamic societies in places where there is Islamic extremism. Often the society is seen as complicit. But one of the things that's very clear from looking at the northern Nigerian situation is it's the importance of looking 
at Islamic societies, not as a source of pathology, but as a source of institutional strengths for overcoming the problem and overcoming extremism. The book itself calls for a whole of society approach to counter radicalization by recognizing the institutional strengths of northern Nigerian society, be it in elders fora or women's groups or youth groups or a huge range of institutions that actually understand the society, how it works, and can engage with dealing with the, the problems that have given rise to Boko Haram. 94% of Nigerian Muslims are uh, surveyed to be against Boko Haram. So it's, it's certainly not something that has support. And it uh, is, in the history of Boko Haram, something that people have risen up against. This is a picture of Muslims standing in churches in order to protect people from uh, attacks by Boko Haram. And they also used to surround churches in many areas. Um, you have uh, various types of civil initiatives to treat the consequences or engage with the widows and orphans or take youth out of the kinds of disaffection that could lead to Boko Haram. And of course, the CJTF again, which is an imperfect but absolutely vital ally in the fight against Boko Haram, where the army is just not able to cope. So Boko Haram uh, really provides, or sorry, the, the civil society in northern Nigeria provides an alternative to the costly standard counter-radicalization approaches that really focus on stereotypes and templates of what Islamic radicalization is supposed to be about, rather than an understanding of the institutions and the uh, social norms and uh, priorities of the society. Um, so the, the book itself finishes with a call to move away from the kind of projectization and increasingly financialization of counterterrorism approaches, to engage with civil society as agents of the design of counter-radicalization strategies, rather than just as service providers to roll out programs that are designed elsewhere. So really, this book is about getting people to think about beyond stereotypes to a historically and socially grounded understanding of extremism and Islamic uh, idioms of protest against economic and political injustice, and to try um, really to engage with the realities of international as well as national development policies that have left too many people behind. Thank you. Sorry. Thank you so much. I, I think Kate has left us um, left me at least in a very good place because what I would like to do really is to underscore what resonates for me in two different ways. When um, we started to look at violent extremism, we did not think that Nigeria, and I agree with you that Nigeria would be the place that would start throwing up these sort of issues. I started looking at my uh, at Africa at all in this way, uh, right from the late 80s, 1990s, when our concept of violence that was so extreme 
was found in Sierra Leone in Liberia in the ways in which um, the uh, Revolutionary United Front, the National Patriotic Front of Liberia, in the forms of violence that they meted out. And I then saw how the shades of violence went on and on and adapted religion. When we looked at militancy and violence at the time, we didn't think that, we, we thought this was so extreme, it was something else. And what I want to try to do here is talk, is highlight aspects of this book that connect directly to the shades of violence that we saw in West Africa at the time. And it's almost as if we have seen a continuity um, and not massive change. Uh, one thing, when you talk about civilian joint task force and in the, uh, in the book, I know the book does justice to this and I, I hope to, to connect some of the chapters beyond the introduction and, and conclusion. I cast my mind back to, to Sierra Leone when at the time, and it connects to this whole question about society. What society produces groups like this? Whether you're talking about RUF, NPFL, and all of those six factions in Liberia, or uh, if you like, Boko Haram, and as a matter of fact, in other parts of Nigeria, the other groups. But we have looked at uh, Islamic radicalization in a particular way as though there's exceptionalism to the kind of violence that we have seen. And I agree with Kate, uh, I agree with the notion in this book that if we connect very tightly with uh, the global um, uh, story around ISIS or around Al-Shabaab, uh, Al even Al-Shabaab is different from Boko Haram in that way. Uh, all of this will miss the connected stories in West Africa and the socioeconomic uh, context that we're talking about. So, so deploying the whole of society to mobilize against a group that has gone rogue in that way, notwithstanding the socioeconomic and political circumstances, is also what we saw in Sierra Leone. And in that whole of society response, you saw civil society backing, in that case, the ragtag, you know, peacekeeping force in itself uh, as it started, not just. Uh, the, the rebel groups. But you saw it, the ways in which we deployed in Sierra Leone, in particular, a, a hunter mil militia. The civil militia, uh, whether it was uh, Kamajos, all, you know, all the people, all the groups that responded to the RUF at the time. It was a way of saying this kind of violence is unseen and it is not accepted by this society. The question I want to raise for discussion about mobilizing society though, uh, in this case in the form of civilian joint task force, is that we do so within a state that may not have the right kind of resources or motivations to rein them back when the conflict is over. So let me pack that because it says a lot about the kinds of states we're dealing with in West Africa. So that's one thing that resonates uh, with me. The second uh, thing that resonates with me is the role of women, both in the mobilization of these groups, uh, as well as in, the, in being part of that whole of society response. Uh, and I think there's a story that is caught, caught up somewhere here. We have not yet resolved this conundrum. 
um, and it's caught between one extreme of seeing women as such uh, as being without agency, and therefore they have uh, they have no choice but go to go the way of the if you like the spouses, the uh, the brothers, the family members, and so on. And there's something not quite accurate about that story. But at the same time, there's agency you exercise because there is no other choice. And the question mark here is what. Therefore, where is the social structure that supports um, the Boko Harams, just like the uh, uh, just like the RUF, just like the NPFL, INPFL, and all of those groups in West Africa? There's a structure that sustains these groups, and we can look at the groups in Mali, in the Sahel today, in the rest of the Sahel today, and ask the same question: Where do we? Um, where do we fall between that puritanical thinking about the role of women uh, and how the victims and the extreme thing, uh, idea that women themselves are very strong factors in the, both the mobilization uh, uh, or the sustaining at least of groups like this. And lit existing literature is caught up in all of this. I think this book has tried to resolve some of that by by looking at the role of women within this um, socio-cultural, uh, socio-economic context. But I think there are question marks that we need to resolve. Two quick factors now in terms of what sets this book apart. So I've talked about two things that resonate with me as I think about what seems to be a lot of continuity with what the kind of violence we've seen in West Africa in the last three decades. So what sets this book apart? Um, Kate has already alluded to it. We have been caught up with this notion that, um, and it's since 9-11, that actually Al-Qaeda and everything that we saw, these are very wealthy people and that ideology is what is driving them and that it's not so much poverty. And it's very attractive in those contexts because really, uh, if you look at studies, some of my own colleagues at King's, Peter Neumann and co, have done a lot of work uh, around really studying um, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, and what drives them. And of course, I accept completely the notion that Boko Haram is a response to a local condition. It is not uh, part of this um, global terrorism agenda in that way. Uh, we can stretch it far if we try to connect Boko Haram too much with all of this. But in that respect, when you really then look at poverty, I buy the idea that poverty and exclusion, particular forms of exclusion, including exclusion in governance, um, when you think of uh, the history, when you look at the historical origins of what became Boko Haram, you could see the participation in local governance, in the local governance context, uh, alliances, if you like, all the way to the office of the governor. And, and youth vulnerability and exclusion is a West African experience as at the heart of this. If you look at Ibrahim Abdullah's work in Sierra Leone at the time, you could also see the connection in terms of youth vulnerability and exclusion. But poverty has got to be a factor. And I think uh, I'll hark back to Francis Stewart's work around horizontal inequalities. And that horizontal inequality, the idea that all of us started, uh, if you like, under the same conditions. 
But yet, if you see our trajectory, uh, the differential treatment over a period of time has created this degree of inequality. And group inequality horizontally is a big part of this picture. But how do we disentangle uh, the poverty? Can we disentangle the poverty uh, uh, idea from the other forms of exclusion, including uh, societal recognition that underpins what Boko Haram uh, became uh, and what it still is. Lastly, uh, what sets this book apart is that it dares to look at the whole of society, uh, arguing that those who are responding, those who are rejecting, as well as those uh, who have per uh, perpetrated this kind of violence, are from that society and actually in mobilizing against this, you have to look for many of the answers in society. I worry that that society, which um, through up all of this, belongs in a state that is neither able um, nor is it willing, in a sense, to take care of this. I'm not even sure. I think it's not even willingness anymore, but there's, there's an ability, there's an inability to respond to all of this. I find all of these um, questions very, very interesting, and I think this book will help us get uh, to the heart of a debate. And I look forward to reading the rest of the book, but I want to conclude on two points. Number one, what does the future hold uh, for uh, a Boko Haram, uh, what do you call it, reality in, in northeastern Nigeria? Actually, what does it hold uh, for the whole of Nigeria? We have seen how groups like this persist. It's a story of the Sahel. Ideology can now be stripped bare because as once we lost the two leaders of that group, the question of ideology, and of course, as soon as we have splinters in the group, that is laid bare. The issue of territory is also not uh, the issue we're dealing with anymore. In the end, these groups want to survive and they want other forms of security at all costs. How does the state, how does the Nigerian state, notwithstanding the fact that society itself is ready uh, to move forward and to deal with this group, how do we deal with a state that is not quite capable of dealing with it? Lastly, let me say what an honor uh, it is to be doing this. Because uh, Raufu was uh, a senior colleague of mine a brother in every way, and I witnessed his earlier research, one of his books that we refer to constantly, the access he had, the patience he had to research this subject was like no other scholar of the moment. And thank God that you have kept him and his work alive in this book. Kate, thank you so much. quickly just going to um, draw on my experience of working with the Office of Transition Initiatives in Niger to think about some of the implications that are um, brought out in this book. While uh, Kate thought that the chapter on Niger should have been called Why Not Niger, um, there, are, there are some people in Niger who do support Boko Haram. Um, 
similarly on the um, on the west side, there's increasing support for Jinnim and Mujao among certain groups. Um, there's also uh, the Zalan movement has become much more popular. And so the Office of Transition Initiatives, it's uh, an American agency um, that you can say is becoming quite paranoid about um, what's happening in Niger. And they have launched a series of uh, programs that are um, called community cohesion programs. But in reality, what they're trying to do is prevent radicalization of uh, Nigerian youth. So, um, I find it really great that um, in this book there is um, a push for us to focus on the political, social, economic um, environment in which Boko Haram arose, and I guess to uh, rationalise the response rather than attributing it to uh, a malfunctioning uh, belief system. But I would argue that we, may, we need to be careful about not um, focusing too, too overly on politics, on the political and economic situation. Um, most violent and non-violent Salafi movements are, are based on the perceived need to link religion and politics together and to implement Sharia so that um, Muslims can live their li lives according to Islamic principles. Um, so while I think this focus on the political is important, I think we need to think about the implications. If we overly focus on the political, we maybe lose that um, idea that what, what are um, violent and non-violent Salafis aiming to do. And I think this is a, this is a really um, interesting um, point to think about in more detail. Because So the authors argue that um, the relevance of counter-radical messaging um, requires that scriptural support for peace and pluralism must connect to non-violent discourses about justice, economic rights, anti-corruption and democracy. But this is actually a discourse that's already happening in non-Salafi movements. Um, the authors are right to point out that there's a lack of political space for voicing popular social and economic protest that drove the appeal of, of Muhammad Yusuf's uh, sermons. But w one could argue that in the lead up to the introduction of Sharia in Northern Nigeria, there was actually space to debate this. And in Brandon Kenthammer's book, he talks about the space which opened up where um, Northern Nigerians debated what the role of the state was, whether the state should be an Islamic state, um, how, how, how to introduce and uh, create a state that, that creates the right type of society. And that's a conversation that's happening in Niger, but it's mainly happening um, among uh, non-violent Salafis, so among members of the Isala movement. And I think this is a really a, important area for us to think about uh, how do we support and, and create that space for discussion about what the role of the state is, how can we uh, create a society that does address corruption. The problem, of course, is that if we're working with Western agencies such as the Office of Transition Initiatives, is that they're seen as, seen as overly biased towards 
uh, Western ideas of liberal democracy and probably overly negative about the implementation of Sharia. Um, so one of the recommendations that we made to the Office of, Tra of, of Transition Initiatives was to send young Nigerians who supported the implementation of Sharia to Northern Nigeria to, to look at what had happened there, um, what were the, the positive outcomes, what were the negative outcomes of the implementation of Sharia. Um, in fact, that recommendation went down like a lead balloon. Because <laughs> um, I guess they were, they were afraid about uh, being seen as promoting an open conversation about the implementation of Sharia. So this is a really tricky space in which to operate, but I think it's definitely a space that's worth um, thinking about. Um, this book also um, advocates a role for the state. So um, advocates the, the authors advocate an increased role for state control over discourses to curb hate speech and to control the propensity of religious competition that tends to foster extremism. So Niger is held up as a potential role model in this regard. But I think we need to be careful about the idea of supporting uh, state-approved forms of, of religion or Islam. Um, in Niger, the Salafis uh, accuse the Sufis of being corrupt, of taking advantage of poor people's ignorance and charging them high fees for what they describe as superstitious uh, rituals. And it's true, they have, they have some good points. Um, there's, also, there's also a risk that in supporting state-approved religious institutions that we um, suppress this debate about what is, the, what is the right way to integrate religion into uh, politics or what is the right type of state for these, for these countries. So in, in an interview um, with, the, with members of the Religious Observatory for the Management and Prevention of Conflict in Agdez in Northern Niger, um, which is a, an organization that's approved by the state it's dominated by the Sufi brotherhoods who are really popular in Niger, the Kadria and Tijaniya. Um, it also receives funding from the Office of Transition Initiatives. And so I, I was asking them what, what's, what's their approach to, um, to trying to um, prevent radicalization of, of youth in, in Agdez. And so one of their first um, activities they described was uh, an initiative to bring all uh, Islamic sects together to, to pray together. Um, and I asked them, well, if the, so the Izala are quite uh, negative about, um, about following um, Sufi imams, they believe they're not properly qualified. Um, and so when I asked them about this, they said, well, actually, what we did was we went to the, we called together all the uh, Sufi brotherhoods, we went to the Azala mosque and we forced them to pray with us. So, <laughs> so that gives a, a kind of a different perspective on the, the idea of bringing all these sects together to pray together and the idea of, of working with pre-established uh, state institutions.
Um, while this is an all-female panel, I actually find the, um, the conclusions about um, women a little bit conservative in the book. Um, so the, the authors conclude that taking advantage of the crisis to push for an external agenda of women's rights and gender autonomy is not only inappropriate, but risks aggravating religious sensitivities. It's absolutely true that um, we shouldn't be supporting an external agenda of female emancipation, but the position of women northern, in northern Nigeria is pretty dire. Only 4% of land is owned by women in north, northern Nigeria. Um, in a 2014 survey, 29.5% of participants reported experiencing physical violence. 15.7% reported experiencing sexual violence since the ages of 15. And in Hausa, the word for co-wife um, is kishia, which is linked to the word, it comes from the word jealousy. So absolutely, the, the way forward is not, should not be an external agenda. But I think there's lots of, <coughs> There's lots of uh, ideas and reforms that we can uh, think about that have been proposed, that, that are being implemented by, by Salafi, both violent and non-violent groups. Um, in, in Niger, uh, female followers of the Izala movement describe a sense of empowerment at gaining access to classes in, in Arabic and being able to read the Quran themselves. In Harry uh, <coughs> Professor's book, um, on women in Boko Haram. She describes how Boko Haram gave the dowry to the brides themselves rather than to the parents, which is the tradition in Hausa Fulani society. Um, uh, Boko Haram also tolerated uh, divorce initi initiated by women, which in uh, traditional society is not accepted. So I think there, there are definitely ideas and, and reforms that could be supported that don't represent an external agenda and that could improve the, the position of women and perhaps not make the, the choice of joining Boko Haram. Um, so some, some authors argue that the choice of joining Boko Haram is an attractive choice for women. I don't agree with that. That's always the case. But in some situations, it seems like it was a strategic choice for them to make. Well, thanks very much to the three panelists, and I know that um, there are many people who are here now who would like to contribute, and so what we would like to suggest in opening up the floor is to maybe take three comments at once. Um, and then, you know, please try to keep your comments brief because we're numerous. So take a, a group of three comments and then turn, turn, turn the floor back over to the panel and then come back to the audience for your questions and, and comments. So, um, ready to hear from you. Um, raise your hands. We, okay, so let me start one, two and uh, three. Okay. Uh, yes, please. Yeah. <coughs> Thank you very much. My, <coughs> my name is Alberto Portuguese, and um, I have a movement, international movement, 
of Hufus, and for humanity united for universal demilitarization. And in the work we do, uh, we, it's obvious to us and to all the politicians and diplomats that we talk with that the situation in Nigeria and in Africa in general and practically in the whole world is determined by the countries that make and sell weapons. Not only weapons, but also tanks and air fighters and warships and everything like that. And the corruption you talk about starts here. To, to mention one of the countries that corrupts people in Africa. We have British airspace uh, has a special budget of millions, millions of pounds to pay in the pockets of politicians for them to buy weapons. There is, so that's excellent. The point, the international dimension, the weapons mm. trade. Yes. And, All right. And so, secret services. Yeah, thank you. And secret services. Right. Not only MI6, but especially CIA from America are all over Africa. Right. So we'll let we'll when we go back to the panel we'll see what they contribute on that dimension. Yes, please. Um, my name is Stephanie Hislop. I'm an army officer currently studying at King's. Um, so I, my question comes well, from my um, thought comes from a very military perspective. Um, as I'm sure you know we've got a uh, uh, military mission station for station up in um Liguria at the moment. Um, and I was really interested um, in your comment, well, both of your comments about um, sort of military capability versus uh, political appetite to do something about this. Um, and I, because um, uh, so one of you framed it as um, this is about an internal thing, getting money from the treasury, um, and um, and there was another sort of suggestion that this is actually more about. Um, Maybe I misread it, but but external money coming in um, is is reducing the political appetite to do something about it, kind of at the str more strategic level. Um, and I wonder, sort of, well, where's the sort of reconciliation? Where, where, how do we reconcile those two ideas? Thank you. Yes, please. Hi, afternoon. Uh, my name is Evening. Sorry, still stuck in the past. <laughs> Sorry, my name is Julia. I'm an Army Reservist with the Defence Cultural Specialist Unit, and uh, I have what I would say are challenges, more to more than uh, more than questions, just on several points. So the first is, you know, in, in the issue of inequality in relation to um, as, as addressed by the first speaker, I, I would suggest that maybe regional inequality between the north and the south is less of a factor because the average northerner, the average southerner has no clue about what the other part of the country is. We all have visions of what the other part of the country is, but it's, it's I am Nigerian just by, to, to declare my, uh, my uh, as well. So I, I would say the inequalities within the south are much more glaring. So you see all populace and wealth. In the north, there are clusters of wealth and then there's a huge amount of poverty. So I would like to just you know, say, challenge that to say, What's the what's the rationale behind that? You know the conclusion that that in, that regional inequality at the Boko Haram level is is uh, is relevant. And also in terms of talking about the military and how the military applies um, things, I'd like to maybe again so there's a bit of a challenge to say that maybe you're looking at the Nigerian military in 
in the same way you'd look at maybe the, a Western military force, and rather than looking at it as a very uniquely Nigerian um, institution that came of age in the 60s and has been atrophied and stuck in the 60s uh, till now. And the people who run the Nigerian military and the current presidents all came of age, you know, through violence. Uh, the, the 1966 coup that gave that, that particular uh, elite group uh, power uh, it was about murdering their colleagues and then more and more violence. So violence has always worked in the Nigerian context. And the response to every single crisis in Nigeria is violence. And the response to Boko Haram was violence, to the Shia was violence. So that's the lesson that every Nigerian has absorbed in that violence world. So I think if you, if you want to look at the cultural context of it, it's, it's that violence is in the Nigerian psyche is, is an effective tool of dealing with things, and that hasn't been eradicated. And the final thing is talking about, uh, as is a popular topic now, gender and the role of women, and you know, much was made of um, women challenging Boko Haram, but I would, I would strongly suggest the Bring Back Our Girls movement and everything is, is not, I'm not saying it's a bad example, but it's, a, it's, it's kind of a misleading example because we've not addressed the issue of class. We're talking about middle-class women, you know, well-connected, articulate, educated women who do not suffer the deprivations of, you know, the average woman in northeast Nigeria or in northern Nigeria. But the resistance to Boko Haram at the local level by, by local women um, and also the support to Boko Haram is much more complex. And I think it's, it's less, it's very difficult to kind of, um, to look at it as, you know, it's going to be a great awakening for women or it's going to be, uh, you know, a great uh, repression for women. I think it's more of a, of a nuanced, uh, of a nuanced kind of a situation than is then to look then, you know, that is presented. Or presented. Thank you. So, th three extremely complicated interventions. Kate, do, should, should we take some more ideas from the floor and address these questions in the reception period or maybe take a few more and then we right take a so seven. right that's what I'm thinking is that um, if they address these questions we may run out of our time so let me just take another batch of, of comments from the floor so Murray wants to say something and then yes here in the middle and yeah over in the corner okay Murray please. can I ask you a simple question which none of us got answers to so I, I Boko Haram is quite well financed. If you can run T-51 tanks, you need a hell of a lot of oil. You need money. If you're going to keep several thousand people fed, you've got to get supplies. We know Boko Haram taxes people. They get ransoms. Would any of you like to elaborate on the eternal, internal economy? Of Boko Haram, rather than say it all comes from God knows where. Yeah. You know, some of it comes from God knows where. Well, thank you. It's, I think it's a related question because, um, in terms of the Boko Haram and the failure of Western education, I know there's some people that think that it was more of the failure of a, a, a government from a Western education cycle perspective to deliver prosperity, to deliver growth. So, the idea of you know, we are modernizing and we have a democratic government government, different from the governments that was in the northern region before we had like democracy and everything. So I'd like to hear your thoughts on, on that idea. So rather than just, you know, unemployment in terms of the individuals themselves, but then a failure of a government that was produced by Western education to deliver prosperity. And the thing on, on women, I'd say that it's not just um, middle class women in the south that 
are trying to fight against Boko Haram. I know that there's a woman called Mama Boko Haram. She is actually a southerner, but then she grew up in the north, and she has been on the front lines of trying to interact with these people, and she was trying to negotiate with them as well. There's also a lady that is called the Boko Haram Huntress. You know, so there is some there's some response from the local northern women themselves, aside the women in the south, you know, from the big bring back our, our girls movement. So I just wanted to make a note of, of that. In the corner, yes, please. Yeah, I just had a um, Kojo from the Feroz Loudy Center for Africa. Um, I just had a question on picking up on something Professor Fumi touched upon was the wider social structure which supports Boko Haram. And I was curious about um, how Boko Haram continues to derive legitimacy in the North when 94% of Nigerians, as you said, don't support Boko Haram. And in terms of um, applying the situation, I know you said particularly Islamist insurgencies are different. We're looking at Mozambique about how Al Shabaab. Whilst fighting the Mozambique um, state, was actively recruiting from young, disenfranchised Muslims, uh, Muslim, Muslims in, in, in Mozambique to the cause, and, and then bring that back to what you mentioned about how youth vulnerability and exclusion are like, primary reasons as a driver for Boko Haram. I was curious about are Boko Haram continuing to derive um, or recruit from, from this same type of audience in, in the north? And then just tagging on one final question, sorry, just real quick. Can, in terms of how now dealing with Boko Haram, can um, is there scope for people, particularly in the northeast, to reabsorb Boko Haram members back into society and, and building off say looking at Uganda and how um, the laws of distance army, particularly around child soldiers, that's it's a very difficult pill to swallow to reabsorb um, people from an army back into the general society. I was wondering if there's anything to support. So I'm very mindful of the fact that we want to end around 7.45. So, and also the fact that we have our reception period to continue the conversation. So with that, uh, maybe let me um, turn the floor back over to the panelists, starting with Ifa and then Fumi, and then we'll let Kate have the last, last word. So just very briefly, please, so we can wind up. Um, so I don't think there's any specific questions that you share, but I think this, this question about uh, women and Boko Haram is really interesting. And um, I think the examples of Northern Nigerian women fighting against Boko Haram is something that we need to pay attention to. I don't, I don't think the, the argument that, uh, that activism is, is, um, is mostly um, like Southern-based or um, is <coughs> the I don't think that's what's coming through in the book. Um, but I do look forward to reading the chapter. Um, I, I think it's like it's there's so many different levels into when we talk about women. It's like something to think about the diversity of women in, in, in Nigeria. Fumi? Yeah, thank you. I, I mean, I think the best thing in terms of responding to a set of questions is that we need, let's look at Boko Haram as an insurgency and you take a classical military response to this, it is true that the Nigerian army uh, has been fighting a war of the past. But typically anywhere in the world, conventional armies are not made to respond to this kind of insurgency. So it was always destined to struggle. And so that it's not so much the financial, as much as the capability of an army that is established in the world. And if you look at some of our general advice texts, is talk convincingly about having tried to persuade the Nigerian government and the Nigerian army to, to start preparing for the war of the future. So we're, we're trying to fight Boko Haram in the 20th century concept. Uh, I don't want to go into what's of his, um, you know, 
debate here, but that, that's the way I want to respond to that. It doesn't matter what external or internal support Boko Haram uh, receives or that the Nigerian government has, even if the incentives of the military, it is not able to have that same sort of response uh, as an effective way to defeat Boko Haram. Lastly, on the funding, again, insurgencies across the Sahel are funded in particular ways because it gets into all of those trading bases. Initially, we thought it was a matter of the Nigerian state funding, part of the Nigerian state funding Boko Haram. We've seen that the traffic from the Sahel, from uh, southern Algeria all the way to uh, those corridors, supports a lively economic base for all the insurgencies across that place. So you're but there's right. a real taxation. Yes, yes, so let's, we're going to exactly. continue this it during the reception period and uh, turn the floor over to Kate so that she can respond and wrap up. Okay, on the resources, there are, there are many ways in which Boko Haram is used as an excuse to pull resources out of the treasury for the state and for the army. So it, it provides a, a basis for even expanding the levels of corruption that have been going on, and also present, preventing money from trickling down to the, <clears throat> to the actual soldiers. But there's also external resources, aid money, which is sloshing around in the north and creates an incentive for um, professionals, people in government, etc., to um, see this going on. I don't think anybody would say they want Boko Haram to continue. But the flows of resources create a lot of incentive to allow it to continue, particularly in various parts of the upper echelon. So internal resources, I think, are probably more powerful than the external ones. But um, the, the fact that resources are, are sloshing around the system and that this is an excuse to, to get money out, I think, creates a lot of perverse incentives in terms of ending the um, the inequality matters. I, I think it's really important to see the ways in which Boko Haram is not only a whole of society issue, but a whole of Nigeria issue. And one of the things that structural adjustment has done is to create a framework in which the economic options of the North were gutted, and the economic options of the South were restructured. So the people who are in a position to pick up the new kinds of jobs that are being created in telecoms, in the film industry, um, much more literate types of jobs are actually more the southerners, whereas the northerners were dependent on the textile industry, um, agriculture, and the ways that it was supported by the state, um, various parastatal activities. And that's pretty much all gone. So they really have done very badly. And that sense of inequality is uh, perceived by people as that uh, lack of opportunity and uh, lack of, of possibility in the north, whereas in the south, there is poverty, absolutely. And uh, poverty levels in the, the southwest are still quite impressive. But their 40 per poverty in the north is 40% higher than poverty in the, in the southwest. So people have a strong sense, not that this guy is wealthier than that guy, but that there's more opportunity in the South and that the North is lacking in, in opportunity. Um, and uh, the issue of finance, I think that the, the kidnapping and the taxation and the capturing of trade routes uh, have generated, and knocking over banks, that also helps. 
uh, have generated quite a lot of finance. I haven't seen any evidence that finance uh, is coming in from any of these Islamic sources. And even the, the trade routes in the Sahel, I think for AQIM, yes, but for Boko Haram, I'm not so sure, at least not so far. But it raises the question, look, when you say 94% don't support Boko Haram, but a hell of a lot of people pay their dues. So what I'm suggesting is... does not support, that's different. They don't condemn, is the answer. As many of us know, taxing is, taxing is sometimes just not having the option. And these people provide security, they, they uh, dig wells, um, yeah, I'll pay my taxes. That's not quite the same as, as support. And in a place where the state provides no support, that's the real risk. It's, the, it's not a great option, but it's the, the best option. Um, the, the issue of um, middle class women um, and the, the role of women is, is an important one and many of the ways that poor women are involved as CJTF members, as fighters against uh, Boko Haram, against the insurgency, um, in various forms of uh, other kinds of, of groups that don't necessarily fight Boko Haram but don't join it. Um, that is another powerful way that people at least stay out of, of the activity. So, yeah, among women, I haven't seen very much to support this idea that women join Boko Haram for freedom. Most women join Boko Haram from the studies of motivations because they were attached to a man that joined Boko Haram, their father, their husband, uh, because they were married into a family that was Boko Haram. Not so much about women going out and joining Boko Haram. And I, I guess the final thing about absorbing, being reabsorbed into this northeast, that's a big, big issue. Um, and it's an, an issue partly because it's been handled so insensitively. I mean, they, they just announced that uh, they're going to be giving um, uh, education abroad to some repentant Boko Haram members. Those sorts of things are just inflammatory. People feel that they have suffered and been killed and attacked by people, and then you give uh, some of the repentance people rewards, which is not to say that there aren't very many people who were captured into Boko Haram, who were enticed into Boko Haram, who joined it while it was still a movement and not a terrorist group, um, and then couldn't get out of it. There are many people who are not radicalized in Boko Haram. And understanding de-radicalization and reabsorption with a more socially informed understanding of who actually are the radicals within Boko Haram and who are just economic members or captive members or whatever. And working with communities for effective reabsorption uh, and reserving de-radicalization, which is very complicated, for those people who are actually radicals and focusing more on jobs and um, uh, rehabilitation from trauma for those who are, are captured and joining because of economic options. So I think a, a much more um, refined understanding of why people are there and how to get them out of uh, the, the situation they're in and working with communities so that people who have created mayhem aren't seen to be rewarded over people who have suffered that mayhem. Kate, that is a profound concluding statement for us. It's sort of practical and uplifting, but also serious and critical, and I think opens the door to many, many future studies of um, the region and Nigeria and Boko Haram. So on that note, thank you all so much for coming out for this event. And